In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Hosea's prophecy, the fourth chapter. Now, more empathetic to Yahweh's concern for the infidelity of the people, the prophet Hosea begins to deliver a lengthy indictment against Israel. The people openly sin, the priests lead the way, and Yahweh laments the lack of love for him and his statutes among the people and forewarns of coming judgment. Good morning and blessed Lenten, blessed Lenten tide. Today is Thursday, March 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check out lhfmissions.org to learn about how they help congregations and missionaries spread the good news through Lutheran materials in foreign languages. They can also help out with a mission sponsor if that's what you're looking for. So again, visit them online at lhfmissions.org. Well, my guest this morning, as we parse God's indictment against Israel, beginning here in chapter 4, is the Reverend Paul Kane, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. Well, good morning, Pastor Kane. Blessed Lenten tide to you. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. How are things good going? Good morning, and howdy from Wyoming. Yeah. You're, um, you're uh, Lent treating you well so far? It is. We've really been enjoying some of the daily readings from the Lutheran Missile Project, and uh, not so much enjoying the snow. We're still um, collecting our October snow. Maybe it will melt in time for Easter. We'll see. Well, we had an inauspicious start to our Lenten season a while back because um, Ash Wednesday had to be canceled first time because we had a blizzard. And so it wasn't just the 18 to 20 inches of snow we got, but then when you get those winds kicking up, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty bad even here in southern Minnesota. But then the next day or so, the city got it all taken care of, and it was like it never happened. So, you know, they're, they're pretty good with snow around here. I'm sure they are up there in Wyoming, too. The side streets, not so much. We had to make that difficult decision, too. And the day before, uh, we had to reschedule a Shrove Tuesday pancake fundraiser. But we had that after church on Sunday. I think people were even more focused and uh, loving and generous toward that family as a result. Oh, good. Wonderful. So, uh, so it was to benefit someone then, not just, uh, it didn't matter that it wasn't necessarily on Strove Tuesday. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, our, t- our text today, I think, is pretty appropriate for Lent. Not that we should be going around feeling miserable at Lent, of course. Lent is a time of um, alleviating the burdens of our sins by remembering the sacrifice that Christ made us made for us on the cross. But at the same time, part of recognizing those sins is to examine ourselves. And the people of Israel were not doing that. And so, as it always is, when you don't examine yourself, God must send a prophet to, well, examine you for you. And that's exactly what's going on here. The Lord, or Yahweh, is going to accuse Israel. Um, Before we get into our text, though, I think it'd be a good idea for us to start off with prayer. And I'd love for you to lead us in that. I'd love to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body, and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, we're getting into chapter four. Yesterday we did—well, actually it wasn't yesterday, it was Tuesday. Uh, Yesterday was the organ concert that preempted the show. But Tuesday we talked through uh, Hosea 2 and 3, and then of course we began on Monday with chapter 1. For those who maybe haven't kept up with all of it during this busy time, would you mind catching us up a little bit on what has been going on so far with Hosea uh, to help us understand where he's going? Certainly. Hosea is listed as the first of the 12 minor prophets at the end of our Old Testaments, the way that we're used to having the books of the Bible ordered. So if you have been reading Ezekiel and Daniel, just turn another page and you'll find Hosea. That's that's where this prophet's book is. In the first few chapters, we're told some shocking things. The uh, very first verse introduces us to Hosea, and it's during the days of some of the kings that we've heard about before. 
Uzziah, like Isaiah chapter 6, bad king Ahaz, good king Hezekiah, and the Lord tells Hosea to go get a wife of a certain character. And this raises a lot of eyebrows, especially given that they're guaranteed to be sins against the sixth commandment here. And the nursery at their home uh, is prepared with some very interesting children's names. I've found it helpful when we've done the Minor Prophets um, here in Sheridan to give folks something to hold on to, to each of these 12 books. They're minor in length, but not necessarily in, in importance. There's a big overlap between the first commandment and the sixth commandment. So my summary for the book of Hosea is simply this. You shall not commit idolatry. It sets everybody up to think about the sixth commandment, but this is an illustration in this prophet's real life with his wife of Israel's idolatry, Israel's unfaithfulness to God. So when the prophet speaks to God's people, and he still addresses them as his children, especially in chapter 4, but he's addressing them with the law, saying, here is my problem with all you guys. And uh, chapter 4 does a great job of getting us ready for the rest of the book. Right before chapter 4 begins, you've got a very brief chapter 3. And um, <clears throat> go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So he's buying her back, redeeming her, which is a wonderful foreshadowing of the redemption that Jesus Christ gives us. Well, and that is certainly what we have to keep in mind during these Lenten uh, season, because, you know, we think about when we meditate on our sins, we, we are often left in despair, which of course is the Holy Spirit working on us, right? Because the person of faith doesn't want to be lost in sin. And yet we must remember that on the horizon, well, in this book anyway, it's on the horizon, is a redemption. For us, the redemption has happened in Christ, and we're just looking forward to the, the full manifestation of that. But I got to say, brother, I love the idea of uh, thou shall not commit idolatry. Uh, it's such a clever turn on words, but it's also so true because so many of our sins, first and sixth commandment including, are, uh, are just that. Right, turning away from God's will, putting our faith, hope, and trust in in things that are are not God pleasing, or frankly, things that are not God. Indeed, indeed. So when I we remember, get into, well, go, go ahead, ahead. Pardon me. No, please. I remember early from confirmation class, all of the pastors we had over those three years say, "If you've broken any of the commandments, you've broken the first one." And the Book of Hosea is a wonderful reminder of that. Uncomfortable but a very clear reminder of that. Yeah, we, we lamented so far with Hosea, who was called to, as you said earlier, where, marry a, a woman of whoredom, as the text says very colorfully, uh, but really marry someone who's going to be unfaithful to you. And we infer that the, the reasoning for that is so that when he proclaims God's words, he can proclaim them with a passion, and with a uh, empathy and connection to just what it is for God to have people unfaithful to him. And we yes. think of God oftenly as, as this, I don't want to say uncaring, but we think of him as this just beyond caring, right? He's this holy, H-O-L-Y, holy other who's completely different than us, and we shouldn't personify him or apply to him emotions that, that are you know human emotions. But the Bible's pretty clear that God loves us, and while there's certainly a, a verb in there, it's activity, he shows his love through Christ, I don't know. What do you think, brother? I mean, there's feelings there too, right? God, God loves us. He doesn't want us to be unfaithful. Yes, God loves us. He doesn't want us to be unfaithful. I was reminded in some of the recent readings that the Lord chastens those 
whom he loves. Good fathers do that because they care. They set boundaries, but sometimes you've seen it as, as a human being and as a pastor, where some people need to make their own mistakes so that the lesson really sinks in. Yeah. And that's where things get uncomfortable. I can't identify with um, Hosea in all of this, but I can identify in a maybe a similar, more minor way. I wonder sometimes, as a man who gets to turn 50 this year, why I have my aches and pains. And that makes the 90-year-olds that I visit just giggle at me, which I'm trying to brighten their day anyway. Right, right. But I think I'm given those in order to better understand how distracting it is and what the people I'm visiting are going through. Everybody's got something going on. And if we can have a heart for that, as our Heavenly Father does for us in Christ, then um, the ministry goes better. That's true. I, I've experienced that even in my own life. I had an accident where I slipped and fell in a parking lot and had really bad back issues. And those back issues led to months of treatments, which included a pretty regular dose of morphine, of opioids. And I remember taking them religiously, religiously. I had them in a bottle with a timer, and I would only take exactly when I was supposed to, and I would avoid taking them if I didn't need them, et cetera, et cetera. And I only say that to say this. After months of being on this medication and then finally wanting to be taken off of it, I had a horrible time. It was so bad. I had withdrawal symptoms, and it made me feel miserable. And they weaned me off of them on a Friday, so it left me the whole weekend just curled up in pain on the floor because of withdrawal symptoms from opioid use. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I didn't abuse this medicine. I didn't get it off the street. I, you know, This was prescribed to me, and I used even less than what the doctor prescribed. And yet I was, I was very angry in a sense that I was still going through this. I remember calling the nurse and saying, listen, I just can't take it anymore. And she says, well, uh, go take uh, uh, another, uh, I had a Viking, so to go take a, another uh, hydrocodone, a pill. And I said, oh, okay, and I took it. And within 10, 15 minutes, everything was good again. Hmm. And so then they slowly weaned me off of again, and then we were successful. I bring all that up to, to say this. Since that ac account I've now been able to feel a lot more empathy for those who are struggling with addiction, whether they are from um, something like what I went through or whether maybe they fell into the trap of illegal drugs. But the point is, you know, you, you, you now feel and you have a heart for those people. So I really I empathize with what you're saying, too. I'm getting oh, I'm only 42, but I'm still getting plenty of aches and pains. And whenever I say, oh, I'm starting to feel old. Yeah, I definitely get chastised by the more older, more seasoned folks around me. But there's all kinds of different ways in which God gives us as pastors, as fellow Christians, and as human beings, the ability to empathize with others. And so we can look at these situations and say, oh, gosh, this was such a horrible time in my life, as Hosea could rightfully say with everything he goes through with his wife and his children. Right. Or he can say, well, now I've been equipped to do my job. And, and his job, of course, is to proclaim God's law to the people. So why don't we move into the text itself, Sounds and I'm going to read just, uh, I guess, just uh, a little section at a time. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of Yahweh, O children of Israel, for Yahweh has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. All right, just a few verses into basically well, quite literally, I should say, Hosea laying down the law of God. And uh, yeah, he hasn't held back. <laughs> There's no love, no steadfastness. And look at all these sins you're committing. Take us through this, Pastor. You know, 
what is what is what does this look like on the ground and how does it apply to us today let's talk about the tree and then the branches and then the leaves chapter 4 lays a great foundation for things that will last for much of the rest of the book there are three main charges that the lord lays out that he has against his people the first one takes up chapter 4 chapter 5 very beginning of chapter 6 there is a lack of knowledge there is a rejection of knowledge which we clearly get into um, in the next paragraph as if we were to skip ahead to chapter 4 and look through chapter 11 the lord says there's a lack of love that i have demanded from you and then chapters 12 and 13 and into 14 there's a lack of loyal faithfulness to me and to your neighbor in need so that's the structure of the tree that we've got going on here as we start looking at this paragraph as a whole things are so bad you might as well have verse number two as one of those example texts in the back of luther's small catechism with explanation for the eighth commandment the fifth commandment the seventh commandment the sixth commandment and that's just verse two wow this is the controversy that the lord has with the inhabitants of his land and it comes down to a summary that we heard about the law love god love your neighbor and this is the law love where god is pointing to us and saying love this is different from the gospel love where jesus loves you we hear that from our pastors i still can't get the version of ozzy hoffman out of my head you can tell he was raised in a in a german church body by the way he pronounced that <laughs> by verse 3 there are consequences to sin there's a lot more that the rest of the book talks about hosea himself has already experienced the consequences of his wife's sin are his children his children that is a devastating thing to uh, have to experience but verse 3 highlights that the land mourns. Um, I think of this as a preview of all creation groans in eager expectation. The people within the land languish. Um, we've experienced that over the last few years with the virus and the response and the confusion and basically the dose of depression that everybody got for being so isolated from one another this also gets to the animals the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens the fish of the sea and if you're thinking hey this sounds like creation in the first few chapters of genesis yes this is human sin humans who were given to be caretakers stewards of the earth to subdue the earth they're not doing it right and all of this is um a bad thing yeah, it's hard to thing. it's hard to imagine as we look at this and some of it makes sense i think to the casual reader right so he says there's no faithfulness or steadfast love no knowledge of god and then it's explained in verse two you know no swear there's i'm sorry there is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery and then there's bloodshed and bloodshed and wars and rumors of war. So there's all these things going on. And I think where it kind of gets really confusing for the casual reader is when it says, then the land mourns. And you, you rightly pointed out that this connects us to, the, you know, all of creation groaning until, until uh, looking forward to the, the salvation that Christ comes in the new heavens and the new earth. But how is it that our sins, or I should say their sins in this particular case, I mean, why does he say that it affects the, the beast of the field and the birds of the heaven and the, the fish of the sea? I definitely see the creation connection there, but is this that they are so unhinged from a proper society that they're abusing the land? Or is it something more metaphysical than that? I don't know. How do you read that? How do you understand that? 
I think the simplest way to say it is it's God's judgment on man's sin. This is a consequence of what they're doing. Um, it raises lots of questions in my mind. Um, who didn't do his job so that there was a shortage of toilet paper or eggs? I can understand when there's a blizzard, when there's bad roads and the interstates are closed, so I don't get my mail and my packages and grocery stores don't get their um, distribution. But this is very clear to see. It's God's judgment on man's sin impacting all living things in the world that God gave man to care for. All creation is now a witness in this court case, this indictment against Israel and sorrows over her condemnation. His attention then changes to the priests specifically in verses 4, 5, and 6, which I'll read now. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Okay, probably some stuff that needs to be unpacked, especially I'll destroy your mother part and forget your children. We're going to want to understand that within the context. Um, but, but still, right? So it basically he turns around and he seems to say, um, for what it's worth, I'm blaming you guys, priests and prophets. It was, you know, you had one job and the people have turned away from you and, and you're basically joining them in, joining in with them. Pardon me. Uh, am I reading it right? I think so, uh, especially if we look at the very first verse of this section. God is saying, it's my turn to speak. It's not your turn to speak or respond to what I'm already presenting, because the people who are supposed to be the intercessors between God and man, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, they are in many ways responsible for what has gone on, because they haven't done their job. They were supposed to be guardians of God's law. They were supposed to furnish religious instruction. Hosea warns the priest not to lodge charges against the people for bringing God's judgment down on the nation, because they themselves are guilty. And the people could also bring charges against the priests, priests for not doing what they were supposed to do. Well, now I'm feeling convicted, right? Because, you know, in this, in these last days, we have, uh, as pastors, the responsibility to point to that ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, and of course, yes. the prophet of all prophets, our Lord and Savior. And so it's our job to guard and dispense this law as it's been passed down to us through the scriptures. So, you know, I, it's, it's tough, right? Because we look at all the things that are going on today, and there's still plenty of lying and swearing and murder and stealing and adultery and bloodshed. The land still mourns over the sins. Uh, what's the message for us as, as pastors? I mean, not too long ago, we had gone through the pastoral epistles, and there was a lot of Paul saying, you know, hey, you need to be upright. You need to be above reproach. You need to demonstrate this, this, uh, these good works. You need to teach the law and not waver from the truth and be, be paying attention to doctrine. But then we step back into Hosea, and he's just like saying, you know, you guys, as you said, you have no right to say anything. Where were you? Who, who was speaking up? I guess what I'm saying is, um, on the whole, are, are we speaking up enough? Are, are we doing our jobs? What do you think? And that's a good question. It's a good di diagnostic for pastors to do um, as they examine themselves. It's good to ask for feedback from church leaders uh, and elders, as well as your wife. That doesn't hurt either. And to have these kind of conversations at Winkle, um, having survived a long-term study of Ezekiel, I always appreciated how the Lord specifically said to that prophet, 
I'm sending you to my people. They're probably probably not going to listen to you, but I want you to be faithful and proclaim my word anyway. And as a servant of God, pastors today are servants of God first and then servants of the people that they are called to serve. I'd rather have a person mad at me than God mad at me for not being faithful. And to talk about Ezekiel and in two more ways, briefly, uh, God says, if you proclaim my word to my people and they don't listen, their blood is on their head. But if you don't proclaim my word, then their blood is on your head. That is very convicting. By the time you get later um, in Ezekiel and you have things are so bad, God says, I, I myself will be shepherd to my people. And there's the very obvious connection to Jesus, the good shepherd. Psalm 23, John 10, we could go on. We as pastors need a pastor, and that's Jesus. Pastor means shepherd in Latin, Spanish, German, even English. It's a wonderful word of the one who serves us even as we serve as under shepherds. In Hosea 2, he says, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Very colorful language. But we talked about how that, of course, is referencing the people. When it says, I will destroy your mother, talking to the priests and prophets, is that the people of Israel? I think you're on to something there. Um, this is a connection to that earlier chapter. And I think the Lord and the prophet and the Holy Spirit want us to see that clear connection. Faithless Israel is portrayed as the mother of this unnamed representative accused priest right here in our text. It's quite an indictment. Right. They weren't doing their job and Another word in verse 5 really caught my attention, uh, if I may. Mm -hmm. You shall stumble by day. This word shows up all over the place. Um, you can see it near the beginning of Isaiah. You can see it in Samuel. It shows up several places here. And uh, reading through the rest of the book in preparation for today, this ends up being the last verb of the whole book. Stumble could also be rendered as to totter, to trip and fall. And it's not just somebody getting dizzy if they stand up too fast and their blood pressure meds aren't behaving. This is another good way to talk about God's judgment. Those who stumble can be restored, but faithless Israel has been stumbling a lot spiritually. Are we surprised by that? Isn't this the pattern? After the death of Moses, after the death of Joshua, after the death of each of the judges, how the people responded to the kingship of Saul, uh, there's a whole lot of stumbling and then God's man on the scene calls everybody to repentance, and God be praised when they come back. Um, that is our message yet. Lent is our annual reminder to repent daily, to tie it back to our season. So when he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge— I'm rejecting you. You know, we, we think of true religion, we think of the faith as, uh, I think a lot of people, I should say, think of it as a an emotional experience or a relationship with God. I grew up with this, you know, you have to have a relationship with Jesus, and he's going to be your personal Savior, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not really denying those concepts, but there is something more than just feeling all right with God. One must uh, grow in their wisdom of God. They must be in the Word. So this knowledge here 
isn't just head knowledge for the sake of knowing things, but it is very important. People need to know who God is, right? We really do. Faith holds on to the faithful teaching. The faith once delivered to the saints, that's the content. And faith that the Holy Spirit gives to us holds on to the content, the pure content of the faith. I really appreciate what you said about emotion. Occasionally in Scripture, we'll have language that sounds like knowledge or reason, referring to faith. Sometimes we'll have language of the heart or the gut that is a way of describing faith. But faith is not the same thing as emotion. Faith is not the same thing as as experience. Faith is not the same thing as reason. Faith is unique, and it is a gift of God. One of the problems that you have among people of God in every time and every place is where God puts up a church, the devil puts a chapel next door. John Huss said it this way, no one does more injury in the church than he who acts perversely and yet has the name and order of sanctity. Luther goes into great detail on this uh, in the large catechism and elsewhere on the on the first commandment on idolatry when it's very dangerous for the people of God when someone says, this is the word of the Lord, when it's not really the word of the Lord. Emotion is not the judge, the barometer, the Holy Spirit detector that so much of American Christianity thinks it is. Is the Word of God being preached in its truth and purity? Is the gospel being proclaimed? Has the law been properly distinguished from the gospel? Are people hearing Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of their sins? There can be all kinds of emotionalism going on, but that's not necessarily Christianity. That's a good thought for us to ponder as we take just a few minutes for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Kane and I will keep on going with Hosea chapter 4. There's still a lot more to get through. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Lee. And with me today is the Reverend Paul Kane, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. Dear listeners, I pray that God's blessing you through our study of His Word. If you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, you know I'd love to hear it. You can send me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook, send me a message there. And I also want to talk about, just for a second, how to catch more episodes. You know you can tune in on the radio if you're in the St. Louis area or listen on demand at kfuo.org. But we know you're busy. So KFUO has made it even easier to make sure you never miss the program. You can download the KFUO app or subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform and catch up if you've missed any episodes. I'm so grateful you're a part of the Thy Strong Word family, and if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please share the program with your friends and family. I'd appreciate that. Well, Pastor Kane, before the break, you left us with a very important reminder that, you know, we have a real-life, concrete, uh, objective uh, uh, things in which to put our faith, hope, and trust. And of course, that's Christ, and it's His Word. It is His what He has done, the whole cross event. 
and it is uh, is law too. And that's what's going on here. He's laying down the law, and the law is good, right, and salutary, uh, because as we know, there is salvation coming. But it doesn't mean that we just ignore the law, knowing that oh well, you know, it's okay. He'll forgive us eventually. No, God is serious. Um, anything else you want to cover before we move into our next verses? Maybe just this insight. Why do we think that the law is bad? Because the law makes us feel bad. Mm -hmm. Because we disagree with it. Because it calls us on our stuff. It calls us on our favorite sins. And God wants us to put them away. He if you educate a sinner, you get an educated sinner. If you discipline a sinner, you get a disciplined sinner. If you excuse a sinner, you're, you're still not out of the sinner landscape. When you forgive a sinner, you have a sinner saint in the name of Jesus. And that's what we need Jesus. We need our sin forgiven, not excused, not talked away, not socially accepted. We need our sin forgiven. Well, speaking of sin, he keeps on going, and he. this is obviously the theme that comes uh, next, but it's still directed, I believe, at the priests and the prophets who aren't holding up their end of the bargain, starting with verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken Yahweh to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. I think that's a good place to stop right there at the end of verse 10. It is. So take us through this. I, I definitely have some things that stood out to me, but just starting, I guess, right at the top, um, the more they increased, uh, who's they? Am I right in saying that's the priests? It's the priests, it's the people, but specifically focusing on the priests here. And numerical growth, there's more people, results in greater iniquity. And it's like peer pressure. It, sin feeds on itself. The behaviors that people are bragging about, rubbing in, in, the, in the face of God, are the cause of their judgment. I was distracted quite a bit during my prep on the third line of verse 7. I will change their glory into shame. There's a couple different ways we could take this, and it's, it's really eye-opening to think about that. What is meant by their glory? We could go the Psalm 106 route, where verse 20 says, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. This trading idea that you find a lot in Luther, he talks about the great exchange, um, or it could be, as Luther talks about, this is what he calls their idol and their worship, which they say was established by the true God, but was not. So they've got an exchange of their false God for shame. Uh, either way, they're getting what their behavior and their belief seems to ask for, not the things of God, but the things of evil, idolatry that will lead to their downfall, their judgment. Yeah, that's some heavy words for those who, you know, look to all the glory that God wants to give them. You know, he calls them his people. We can even think back just to, you know, a couple days ago when we were talking about chapter 1, and, you know, he has Hosea rename his children, you know, or one of his children, not my people. And so it's this recognition that, you know, being a part of God's family 
doesn't mean that, well, you know, I'm just, my name's on the rolls at the church or, or even I, I show up and I sit in the pew like I'm dutifully supposed to do, but it's about, you know, living in the glory that God genuinely wants to give you and not exchanging that for, well, the, the shame of the world and sin. It gets more uncomfortable by verse 8, where the priests are feeding on the sin. So the priests have been boasting about their own glory, and they're getting fat off of it. I think of this as um, a false preacher would do today, uh, somebody who's famous in the media, but is not faithfully preaching the Word of God. They're basically getting very, very wealthy by promising things, by preaching things that the Lord has not given them to do. They're enriched, they're well-fed, because the people live in wickedness, and they're being told things that aren't the word of the Lord. From what I've oh. been reading, it seems that this is sort of a double entendre here, because when mm. it says they feed on the sin, uh, I'm sure as you know, it could also refer to the sin offering. So Indeed. it could be quite literal. That means uh, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, meaning that they directly benefit in terms of getting more food when the people sin more and have to bring offerings more. Um, and, and so even to make that more generic, what you're saying is so true. Like it, it, it's very beneficial to the unscrupulous uh, TV preacher or any other preacher to make people feel guilty enough to then sacrifice something that benefits him directly. And that is such a danger because this is what the world, when they see this happening, thinks of all churches. Yeah. I, 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 I've never, um, I never get over hearing people tell me that, aren't, that don't like pastors or don't like churches how uh, I as a pastor should pay taxes. <laughs> oh, we pay so many taxes, which is what's sort of funny about that. But they think that we're somehow in it for our own benefit when it's like that's not how it works. But even when it does work, you know, the church could could grow financially if every message was just this, you know, you you can appease your the, the Lord, you can make up for your sin by donating more and more and there are weak people who will give in to that false knowledge and that false doctrine. Um, and that seems to be kind of what was going on here. It, it goes on today. It was going on back then. It's much like itching ears, not wanting to hear the real thing, and they find preachers to suit what they want to be told. That, uh, that can be a temptation for some pastors, uh, especially when they're, they're being pressured to do certain things by a congregation that isn't appropriate. So if they get rewarded for doing what the people want, it just feeds on itself over and over and over again. But there's consequences for that. And it shall be like people, like priests. Mm -hmm. There's judgment on both. Luther even calls it revenge, that the Lord is um, saying, well, they're both alike. I'll take away both the people, I'll take away the priesthood too, I'll get after them because of their ways. And I think of our one of our um, corporate confession and absolution confessions, thought, word, and deed, by what we've done and what we've uh, left undone. That's how verse 9 really wraps up. One thing, too, and this is absolutely not getting unscrupulous pastors out there off the hook, but earlier when we read about how the priests and the prophets, and, and it says, I will destroy your mother, and I asked, is this the people? And it does seem to be that he's talking about the people of Israel. Um, well, in a way, there are these cycles of, of self-perpetuating systems. For instance, you talked about the pastor who is unscrupulous, but then you think about the congregation who encourages that. And so there are congregations out there um, who, because of their own self-interest, basically give birth to pastors who are acting like this. So there is, as you pointed out, as God points out here, a responsibility absolutely on both sides. So again, just for clarity, I'm not trying to get any 
um, wicked pastor off the hook by no means. But there are also such things as dysfunctional congregations that can uh, be mothers to these types of people. Yes, and it's a challenge to deal with both. Um, so I do, I do feel for our ecclesiastical supervisors. Um, and I always like the illustration of a stable boy, somebody with a good strong back, a spine, and the ability to clear out the stall and lay down fresh straw. Yeah. Yeah, that's something to think about. I, I, I definitely am uh, in prayer for, for the district presidents and, and circuit visitors and other people who have that, who have that responsibility to, to do that. It's tough. But then there's it says— the, he, oh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. There's some of the least fun meetings I have to go to, but ultimately it's for the good long-term health of pastor and people. Absolutely. So it says they feed on the sin of my people. He's upset about that. He'll punish them, as you pointed out. They shall eat, which I think makes us think of the sin offering. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Um, he's leaning into this idolatry also being represented by the Sixth Commandment. Basically, they're going to do all these things which can have benefits, like being satisfied after eating or the birth of children through sexual activity. But because they're not doing them um, wholesomely, their, their, their actions aren't going to benefit them. Why? Because they've forsaken Yahweh to cherish the infidelity, the whoredom, and wine and new wine. It's probably not worth lingering over, but I would love to hear, what are we talking about when we say the wine and new wine? Um, is it literally just two different kinds of wine, or you know, what is it there? There are two different words for wine in Hebrew. Uh, one is new wine. It hasn't been aged well for a long time. Um, and that's in contrast to the wine that Jesus creates out of water at the wedding at Cana, mm -hmm. that it's the good wine, uh, according to the host. You've saved the good wine until now. Wine Alcohol in general, intoxicants, as, as we talked about, pain relievers before, good things can be misused. So we have what I like to think of as the bookends for wine or alcohol use, as Paul says, Timothy, have a little wine for your stomach because of your frequent ailments. And elsewhere we hear, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The problem with wine, with intoxication, is you lose judgment. How many times have we met somebody who's had a hangover? And how many times have we met someone where their abuse the night before of a chemical, usually alcohol, leaves them to not remember what they did? That is why intoxication is the sin, not just touching alcohol, as some church bodies, some preachers have moved the goalposts. It may be not appropriate for an individual to say, I probably shouldn't even touch the stuff, especially if you're taking medications that could interact with it, or you've had a history of sin as a result. But we can't make a blanket statement that we can't have wine ever. Jesus used wine in the Lord's Supper, and it is appropriate. I think every pastor I've ever met would have a problem if somebody got drunk at communion. Right. It's a good gift, but we dare not misuse the good gifts of God. God invented sexual relations for a husband and a wife, married to each other, uh, till death us do part. When God's good gifts are used outside of his good purposes, you do end up with trouble, and sins tend to multiply, as we talked about in verse 7. There's multiplication of sin, but not multiplication of blessings anymore, they're not going to see 
good fruit from bad trees, bad behavior in verse 10. Well, some of that bad behavior becomes very explicit as we get into verses 12, 13, and 14, because what is described here is, well, idol worship in its most literal sense. I'll read those verses now. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their god to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Okay, so, you know, it starts off actually a little humorous, in my opinion, Um, you know, not because it's not a serious situation, but it's just the idea of someone asking advice from their walking staff is is humorous because we're so far removed from such behaviors. But here they are. God sort of calls out the, I think, the, uh, what would you say, the, 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 how ridiculous it is that they're asking questions of pieces of wood. It's absolutely ridiculous. I, I think of folks in maybe somebody's American experience of using a divining rod to supposedly find a place to dig a well. Right. Um, there are so many different ways of getting it wrong, of having a God other than the one true God. I remember I was in a History of American Jazz course at my university. And it was, a, let's call it a fourth choice after the class that I wanted was canceled and the other two classes that would have fit into my curriculum were already full and I had to take them later. It was a very interesting class and we were specifically invited to a concert, a jazz concert that evening on campus. The music was interesting. It was really fascinating to the point that Even on my student budget, I bought one of the CDs. I didn't understand what the lead singer was doing, dancing with this big stick, taller than herself, on stage for the whole time. But then, when I read the liner notes in the the CD, she didn't give praise to God and Jesus for her success. She wasn't a Christian at all. She said, all praise to the goddess Asherah, Oh, it was wow. an Asherah pole at a jazz <laughs> concert at a public university. And it was just so ridiculous. I couldn't get those recordings out of my dorm room fast enough. Oh, They've been... well, you, I'm just sorry, but I just want to interrupt. We, we, we <laughs> talked earlier about what I called bail burgers, right? So Paul's saying things like, you know, you know, we know that idols aren't anything, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, if you have these burgers and they're dedicated to Baal, you know, it's really just a burger, but it has these, you know, connotations to it. It's been sacrificed to idols. And so I've never imagined a share of jazz CDs I, that I, that is a, so my, my, my advisor when I was in college was a Wiccan. Uh, that's as close as I got to some craziness. Um, he told me not to go to, when I decided to change from criminal justice to go to seminary, he told me if I liked being a Christian, not to go to seminary which uh, wasn't the worst advice, but we could get into that later. But he, uh, he talked about um, his, his faith of, of wiccanism, but I have to say that, that yours beats it. I've never seen in real life in a share poll. I love it. I mean, I don't I, love it, but you know what I mean? It's just, it shows yeah. how comical it is because here you have the creator of the universe upon which to call. And they're literally, well, they're asking their walking stick for advice. And it makes no sense. Um, Perhaps you've thought about the idea of people become like the things that they worship. Where you spend your time shows what's really, really important to you. And when people become more and more stiff-necked, there's a, there's a description for you we hear about in the scriptures about idolaters. They're becoming more and more like the not real 
carved by human, false god idols of wood, metal, and stone. Unseeing, unhearing, stiff-necked. People are becoming like the things they worship. The rest of the things described in the verses we read are other um, idol-worshiping practices, and I'd love to go through each one, but we're getting close to the end of the program. I want to hear your thoughts in verse 14 particularly, though, when he says, I will not punish your daughters when they uh, play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, because the men are doing these things. Is that getting people off the hook? I mean, why why the distinction there? It's not necessarily letting them off the hook, but more of a more of a distinction here. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated is really saying, I love Jacob so much because he was the chosen one, if you will, that it looked like I hated his brother, Esau. Um I desire mercy and not sacrifice, we have from our Lord himself. This is, he wants mercy, but he is also called for in the Old Testament system. We've talked about sacrifices uh, a bit here, even in Hosea 4. He wants both, but if he has to pick one, the priority is there. So instead of only punishing the daughters, when they behave in this sinful way, he's following the logic of the Lord singling out the priests in verses 4 through 9, in signaling out the men who are also involved. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be um, that so-called oldest profession right. if it wasn't for the sinful demand for illicit Sixth Commandment-breaking stuff. Honestly, it's very uncomfortable. I'm blushing if we were on a video podcast, brother, (laughs) dear listeners. It's important for us to talk about these things, too. We should blush at, at things that should be between a husband and a wife. Um. Well, I'm just looking to get through Hosea without a letter from the FCC, so we'll see how that goes. Amen. I'll pray for that. (laughs) But I have just a few more verses. We're not going to really have time to get into them, but I want to get them out there on the air. This is going to be 15 through 19, which wraps up the chapter. Here we go. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not, as Yahweh lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can Yahweh now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed of their sacrifices. With just a couple minutes left in the program, brother, uh, your final thoughts. Verse 15 is important because it mentions a house of wickedness. Beth, house, uh, Avon, Aven, wickedness. It is a pun on house of God, Beth El. Verse 18, different translations handle that sixth commandment sin in different ways. I was double-checking my Latin translation of this. Um, it was very helpful to me in a Sunday sermon. It uses the word fornication here. It sure. has a different emphasis here, but still Sixth Commandment violation. You can feel the heartbreak of the prophet here in his relationship with Gomer, and you can also see God's grief thus far in this whole book. Hosea married Gomer. God is betrothed to Israel. Hosea is a faithful husband. God is a faithful husband. Um, Hosea's love is unrequited. God's love is unrequited. The relationship disintegrates, and we see that with God and, and his Israel as well. Gomer pursues other men. Israel pursues other gods. 
Gomer is indifferent to the feelings of Hosea. Israel is indifferent to God's feelings. And this is why I like the emphasis on you shall not commit idolatry. It takes it just, it takes it away from just an emphasis on the sixth commandment sin and refocuses our attention in repentance and faith on the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and makes us all the more thankful for our Redeemer, Jesus the Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to end our program on, our focus on Jesus. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Paul Kane, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back. Folks, the bad news keeps coming for the people of Israel as Yahweh, through Hosea, details the impending judgment in the next chapter. We'll pick up there tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong Thank you.